This is Jason Holleran. I proudly served for 33 years, culminating as the Deputy Commandant at West Point. Put this on your calendar. World War II weekend inside Old Bethpage Village Restoration on Long Island. Scores of operational vintage armor in formation May 18th and 19th. Nassau County Executive Bruce Blakeman invites you to join him in saluting America's greatest generation and all those who have worn the uniform in defense of our freedoms. That's May 18th and 19th, presented by the Museum of American Armor. Richard Nixon. Well, I'm not a crook. Ronald Reagan. Tear down this wall. George W. Bush. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. And Donald Trump. And a friend of mine for a long time, he uh, only likes politics. If you ask him about how are the Yankees doing, he has no interest. If you ask him almost anything, he likes politics and he's a professional at the highest level. Roger Stone. All of these presidents relied on one man to secure their seat in the Oval Office. That man is Roger Stone. This is The Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. Welcome. I'm Roger Stone, and this is The Roger Stone Show here at WABC Radio. WABC Radio. Making AM radio great again. You can find us at 770 AM on the AM dial. Uh, but if you're out of town or you're indisposed, you can always find us at WABCradio.com where we are streaming worldwide. Now, my advice is that you download the 77 WABC app to your cell phone because you don't want to miss any of the great WABC radio lineup. I'm talking about Sid Rosenberg in the mornings. Always bring it first thing. Got to hear it with my black coffee. Uh, We're talking about Larry Kudlow, the quarterback of President Donald Trump's successful plan to turbocharge the American economy. He's on WABC on Saturdays. Rita Cosby, one of the most incisive experienced radio journalists in the country, has an unbelievable show at 10 o'clock here on WABC. You don't want to miss that. Frank Marano, who has kind of a wacky sense of humor, uh, after uh, his show, After Midnight, uh, very, very special. If you're a night owl uh, and you like the offbeat and the unusual, Frank Marano's show uh, on the other side of Midnight is the show for you. Dominic Carter. Dominic Carter is a man who has his finger on the pulse of New York. Uh, Always excellent reporting by Dominic Carter. You don't want to miss the Cats and Cosby show. Uh, this is the, this is the table setter every day. This is where every day at five you can get a great summary of the most important news stories of the day and expert analysis from a panel of the very best. Uh, that shows at eight o'clock on Sunday mornings, sets the pace for the entire Sunday. And then of course there's my old friend Joe Piscopo who's on Sundays with Sinatra. You don't want to miss any of this, folks. And the way you can make sure you don't miss any of it is by downloading the 77 WABC radio app in your cell phone. That's Red Apple Media. You can easily find it in the App Store. You want to go do that right now. This has been an extraordinarily sad week for America. I mean, who arrests and tries to jail their chief 
political opponents. Well, uh, Adolf Hitler, uh, Joe Stalin, uh, Fidel Castro, and now, sadly, Joe Biden. Uh, this is the complete political weaponization of our judicial system. This is the election interference. In other words, Special Counsel Jack Smith has accused Donald Trump of election interference because he exercised his First Amendment, his free speech rights, to question the irregularities and the anomalies in the 2020 election. He has an absolute right to do that. Uh, this idea that he should now be jailed is really driven by the fact that every time they bring some new indictment against Donald Trump, all of them, I think, fabricated because the 1977 Presidential Records Act makes it very clear that President Donald Trump is entitled to do anything he wants with his presidential records, including deciding which are personal, which he can keep, uh, and which need to be sent to the National Archives. The federal courts have upheld this. Uh, they said that, uh, that Bill Clinton, a former president, could do anything with his records that he wanted, including keeping them in his sock drawer. So it is, uh, it is a sad day in America to see this. David Schoen, who uh, represented President Donald Trump in his first impeachment trial in the U.S. Senate, joins us today to analyze these charges against the president and their implications. You've, you've seen David on the Laura Ingram show. You've seen him with Sean Hannity. Uh, but you've also seen him on uh, CNN, MSNBC. He is a criminal defense lawyer extraordinaire, a man who is never afraid to go into the lion's den. Uh, he has called these charges by the Department of Justice a threat to our democracy. Uh, I predicted for some time that Joe Biden will get the hook, uh, only to be replaced by, yes, Michelle Obama, without any question one of the most popular people, not only in the country, but in the world, certainly among the most popular Democrats in the country, as is her husband, the former president. Uh, and I believe that the weight of the impact of Joe Biden's policies, uh, combined with his inability to just perform, to uh, he keeps falling down, he seems dazed, confused, he reads the stage directions out loud, uh, he doesn't seem to be able to answer the most basic questions. Uh, and now the breaking story, which I really must credit the New York Post for, uh, of the epic, stunning uh, corruption of biblical proportions uh, by the Hunter Biden, Joe Biden, Jim Biden crime family. We're talking about hard evidence, not conspiracy theory, hard evidence uh, of extortion bribery, money laundering, influence peddling, illegal lobbying. And we have details of multi-million dollar payments from Russia, from China, from Romania, from Ukraine, and elsewhere. Everything they told us, remember they told us that everything in Hunter Biden's laptop, that was all Russian disinformation. But thanks to the crusading reporting of Miranda Devine at the New York Post, uh, and Emma Jo Morris at Breitbart News, we now know differently. Thanks, thanks to the heroic decisions by former Mayor Rudy Giuliani, 
whose show here on WABC you never want to miss. We now know that every last bit reported in Hunter Biden's laptop was absolutely true. So uh, joining me to break this down uh, and to talk about whether, in fact, there will be an effort to replace the crippled Joe Biden with Michelle Obama is Joel Gilbert. Joel Gilbert is a documentary filmmaker and author, uh, and uh, he has made a new uh, film based on his book entitled, both entitled, Michelle Obama 2024. He joins us with a very special focus on the suspicious drowning death of the Obama's chef on Martha's Vineyard, reported this past week. Uh, The U.K. Daily Mail is calling it a cover-up. The Massachusetts State Police are refusing to to, uh, reveal who made the initial call to police, uh, who the second person who was reportedly paddle boarding with the chef uh, in a pond uh, very close to the uh, palatial Martha's Vineyard compound of President and former First Lady Michelle Obama. Uh, He's going to join us to talk about that. Uh, now, who doesn't like a good hamburger? I mean, I, I, I'm like Donald Trump. I love a good hamburger. Very specifically, I love a good cheeseburger, medium rare, please. Uh, and since the closing of the 21 Club, uh, frankly, J.G. Mellon's used to be one of my favorite spots. I was a little disappointed last time I went there. Uh, I used to love to go to P.J. Clark's, uh, but I've found what I think is the best burger in New York. It's at the Beach Cafe. And uh, restaurateur and saloon keeper Dave Goodside joins us to talk about the history and the search for the perfect American hamburger. You're going to want to definitely be here. We're going to talk about the humble origins uh, of the burger uh, and a little bit about how Dave goes about uh, preparing what I think could be one of the best burgers in the Big Apple. Uh, If you're in the greater New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area, trust me, visiting the Beach Cafe, that's Dave's Saloon, uh, on 2nd Avenue is well worth the trip, and he's going to join us to talk about the humble American hamburger. Uh, This is Roger Stone. Uh, This is uh, the Roger Stone Show. One of the other outrageous matters uh, before us today is the decision uh, by the Secret Service to deny Secret Service protection to Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Uh, It's bad enough seeing an American president standing in the dock being charged like this was some kind of banana republic, but that's not the only outrage over the last week. The decision by the Department of Homeland Security to deny Robert F. Kennedy Secret Service protection in view of the fact that both his uncle, President John F. Kennedy, and former New York U.S. Senator Robert F. Kennedy, his father, were both murdered, one while serving as president, one while running for president, demonstrates what an outrage this is. In 1968, after Robert Kennedy, the senator from New York, former Attorney General of the United States, was brutally murdered on the night of the California primary in California, Uh, the Congress granted the Secret Service the authority to give 
the, any presidential candidate who was legally uh, certified by the Federal Election Commission as a legal candidate, uh, Secret Service protection. The Secret Service used to be under the U.S. Treasury, now under the Department of, U- of uh, Homeland Security. Well, Robert Kennedy is a legal candidate. He did apply for Secret Service uh, protection. He is both eligible, and I think it is most important, he is deserving of protection. Why? Well, because the Biden opposition uh, research machine has stirred up hate and animus towards Robert Kennedy, falsely trying to label him as a conspiracy theorist uh, and some kind of kook. Frankly, he is uh, raising common sense issues in his campaign. I am a supporter of President Donald Trump. Everyone knows that. Uh, No, Robert Kennedy is not a close friend of mine. He's an acquaintance. That means I've met him once. Uh, You can see pictures of this all over the Internet with the false claim that I urged him to run uh, or that I'm advising his campaign. All of that is false. There's a lot of things that he stands for that I don't agree with. I happen to be uh, anti-abortion. He is pro-legal abortion. I don't really believe in climate change. He is a strong supporter of the concept of climate change. But when it comes to sealing our southern border, um, he's the lone Democratic voice of sanity on that issue. He wants to end the crime and drug epidemic in this country caused by our having open borders. He's also an articulate critic uh, of the war in Ukraine, where we don't even today have peace talks ongoing. We now know that there were two very, uh, hopefully, potential peace agreements that would have stopped the killing, and both of them were scuttled by the Biden State Department. So uh, I think it is particularly outrageous that this hate and this animus towards RFK is constantly stirred up, yet the Biden administration, not wanting to, I guess, elevate the credibility of RFK uh, as a presidential candidate, deny him Secret Service uh, protection. I find that completely outrageous. The way he's being treated could incite an insane person to hurt or kill Robert Kennedy, and therefore we here... Uh, on the Roger Stone Show, and everyone in my family is praying for Robert Kennedy's safety. We're supporting a different candidate for president, but we are praying for the safety of Robert F. Kennedy Jr. This is the Roger Stone Show. If you're just tuning in, we have an all-star lineup for you today. Criminal defense attorney uh, David Schoen joins us to talk about the charges against President Donald Trump. Uh, Author, filmmaker, documentary filmmaker Joel Gilbert talks to us about Michelle Obama and the suspicious uh, drowning of the Obama's chef on Martha's Vineyard and new stories in the UK Daily Mail that say there is a cover-up going on and uh, restaurateur, perhaps the greatest saloon keeper in New York since Toots Shore, Dave Goodside, joins us to talk about his pursuit of the perfect best American hamburger. Uh, In the meantime, former Attorney General Bill Barr actually maligned me this week, telling the Washington Post that perhaps if I hadn't told Trump to declare victory when he lost uh, the election, uh, that uh, the special counsel's investigation 
would never happen. The problem with that is that's not even remotely what I said. What I did say was that if on election night the election was up in the air, uh, if it was in dispute, if it was undecided, that President Trump should declare victory. This is precisely the same advice that former Secretary of State James A. Baker III gave to George W. Bush when the 2000 election was disputed, when it was not clear uh, who had won, and when the Democrats were making allegations of election irregularities and anomalies in the Florida result. Uh, this is the same advice, by the way, that Ambassador Joseph P. Kennedy gave to his son, Senator John F. Kennedy, in 1960. Uh, in fact, we know that Richard Nixon never actually conceded that election. Uh, when he went down to the ballroom the morning after the election, the election was still in dispute. He said, and I quote, if the current trend continues, John F. Kennedy of Massachusetts will have been elected president. So at no time did I say to the president, uh, if you lose, you should claim you won. Never said anything of the kind. It's a smear. But it does speak to the larger question. I saw a terrific interview uh, with uh, former New York Police Commissioner Bernie Carrick, um, who was in charge of collecting the evidence of the irregularities and perhaps outright fraud in the 2020 election. Uh, and as he said uh, in an interview I saw earlier, there is no doubt in his mind that President Trump believed then, and he very clearly believes now, uh, that he actually won that election. And if that is the case, it means the charges against uh, President Donald Trump cannot stand because they're based on the fact that he knew he lost, yet he uh, conspired to hold on to power. That's a, a flawed argument, folks. I've known Donald Trump for 45 years. There is no question whatsoever. He believed then and he believes now that he won the 2020 election. I'm Roger Stone. This is The Roger Stone Show. As the great Jackie Gleason would say, get ready. Here we go. Richard Nixon. Well, I'm not a crook. Ronald Reagan. Tear down this wall. George W. Bush. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. And Donald Trump. And a friend of mine for a long time, he uh, only likes politics. If you ask him about how are the Yankees doing, he has no interest. If you ask him almost anything, he likes politics and he's a professional at the highest level. Roger Stone. All of these presidents relied on one man to secure their seat in the Oval Office. That man is Roger Stone. This is The Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. This is The Roger Stone Show here on WABC Radio 770 on your AM dial. You can tune in anytime also if you are outside the greater New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area where I grew up by going to WABCRadio.com. We are streaming worldwide. Now, I'm a man who kind of like President Donald Trump. I love a good hamburger. Uh, and uh, a good hamburger, a great hamburger, the best American hamburger, not 
all that easy to find. You see, the hamburger is one of the most popular foods in the world. There's over 50 billion served every year in the United States alone. And although the humble beef patty on a bun is technically not much more than a hundred years old, it's, it's part of a greater lineage linking American businessmen, World War II soldiers, German political refugees, Middle Evil, Middle E, Medieval traders, uh, and, uh, Neolithic farmers. Uh, now where does that name come from? Obviously, a hamburger is not made from ham, which would be pork. Uh, interestingly, spurring an increase uh, of the German immigration in the United States, they brought their food with them. With Germany uh, and with German people coming to the United States, German food, particularly beer gardens, flourished in American cities like New York City. And while butchers offered a wide variety of traditional meat preparations, because Hamburg, Germany, was known as the exporter of high-quality beef, Restaurants began offering what they called a hamburger-style chopped steak. One of the best hamburgers in New York City can be found at the Beach Cafe, and the restaurateur who runs that fine establishment, Dave Goodside, joins us on The Roger Stone Show now. Welcome, Dave. Roger, thanks for having me on it. That's quite an intro there. I think you should think about teaching the history of food at one of the local colleges. Well, look, I, uh, I am I am the lover of a good burger. I used to love to go to a PJ Clark's, uh, where uh, the late Governor Hugh Carey once stumbled out of that saloon and urinated on a, a fire hydrant, and unfortunately, a picture was caught by the New York Daily News. Hugh Carey, by the way, uh, a Democrat, but one of the last great governors of New York State. They used to turn out a pretty good burger. I used to go to J.P. Mellon's, although they more recently have disappointed uh, when I went there. Uh, the 21 Club used to have probably the best, but also one of the most expensive burgers uh, in New York. It was called the 21 Burger. They are sadly closed, no longer with us. So I, I really love the Beach Cafe, and I know you have worked very hard to to kind of perfect the ideal, the best American burger in town. Tell us about it. Well, first of all, let me tell you that the, the whole Cary clan used to be quite regulars here uh, at the Beach Cafe back in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. So we, we got to know them well. And, uh, yeah, the burger really is our best and most popular item. We sell uh, quite a variety of items. We sell chicken and fish. Um, uh, we sell steaks, salads, but the burger, we probably sell 10 times as many burgers as any other item. It's a very specially handled item for us. It's kept in a, a special refrigerator at 32, exactly 32 degrees. It never sees light. It's in airtight bags. And there's a special blend, which I'm going to tell you today, if you promise to not share this with anybody. No, no one other than the millions of people within the uh, sound of our voice will hear this, so go right ahead. Well, if they're fans of Roger Stone, I'm happy to give this out. It's chuck mixed with brisket, short rib, and about 17 to 18% fat. That is the secret. We put a little bit of grass-fed butter in there and the special seasonings. 
cooked on a flat top grill, seared on the outside, recommended to be served medium rare on a very plain Arnold's bun, Arnold's bakery bun. It's simple. It's straight ahead. Doesn't require a lot of training. And it comes out perfect every time. That's the key. Freshness, consistency, simplicity. How we do it. Now, folks, you can get that burger at 1326 2nd Avenue in New York City at the Beach Cafe. Uh, the Beach Cafe is, uh, is an old world saloon, as it were. Uh, I've often likened Dave Goodside to Toots Shore, one of the legendary restaurateurs and saloon keepers uh, in New York City. Uh, it is very old world. I mean, we're talking about the blue and white checkered tablecloths. So we're, we're talking about real American fare. Can you get a great Caesar salad? Yes. But uh, the burgers kind of top it all. Dave, what about the bun? I mean, I know you're, you're some people like a potato bun. Uh, the, the bun and the just the right kind of moistness of the bun, to me, is crucially important. What, what do you do about, to, about the bun? Well, the bun is, as I said, it's an Arnold's Bakery. Um, I call it a picnic bun, and we get it from our distributor. But anybody can go into the local supermarket and get this bun. It's not a potato bun although it's very, very similar in texture and feel and taste. Um, it is a four-inch bun, not oversized, is what I'm trying to say. And, um, you know, one of the great things about uh, the bun is when you have a, an item like a burger, you want it to be consistent. And you're going to run out of buns every now and then. So if you can go down to the local store and grab the exact same bun, bring it back in, your customer is still going to have that consistent experience. And uh, anyone who studies marketing and business will talk about consistency. One of the key reasons that McDonald's has been so successful all over the world, no matter where you walk into a McDonald's, whatever country it is, that burger is exactly the same. Uh, now, uh, obviously, when you've got a great burger, I, I personally prefer you know a little lettuce, a little tomato, uh, a little sliced raw onion, not too thick, not too thin. You have uh, kind of uh, honored me uh, by offering the stone burger, which includes a perfectly fried egg on top. So I've got to ask you out of curiosity, how are the stone burgers moving there at the Beach Cafe? Well, you know, you know, Roger, you and I have a lot in common. We both come from Fairfield County. You're in Norwalk, I think, I right? Was born in Norwalk, absolutely. Okay, I was raised in Trumbull, Connecticut, so we've, we've been aligned quite a bit, and I did come to you and I said, if I was going to make a hamburger and put it on the menu named after you, what would the ingredients be? How would it be set up? And you said exactly as you just did, beef patty, lettuce, tomato, fried egg on top. We probably sell half of the burgers that go out are stone burgers. I don't know if the people are... Uh, know that it's Roger Stone. I don't know if they think it's Sharon Stone, but we sell a lot of Stone burgers. People love it. It's become a signature item for us, and uh, I don't see it coming off the menu anytime soon. So, Dave, uh, now anybody who you know loves a good burger knows that the obvious accompaniment uh, are the fries. I mean, a burger and fries 
it's as American as, you know, apple pie and vanilla ice cream. Uh, and a great French fry is almost as hard to find uh, as a great burger. Uh, I used to love the French fries at McDonald's. Uh, I don't go there anymore. The quality of the burger, if it was ever good, I mean, it was at one time it was tasty. Now I don't even find it tasty. Uh, I'm not even sure it's really beef, but that's just my opinion. Tell us how you how you conjure up the perfect French fry. Well, we've had the McDonald's style fry, the string fry, for 40 years. I mean, it's a very popular item. But about, uh, I don't know, six or seven years ago, we introduced what's called the cottage fry, which is a rounded shape, uh, like a thicker potato chip uh, with ridges. And... Um, it's become very popular as well. So we actually have two choices. We've got the cottage fries. We have the string fries. We also offer sweet potato fries for people that think they're being a little bit more healthy. I really don't know if the sweet potato fry is actually that much more healthy than, say, the string fries. But um, on an item like that, we do offer a little bit of variety. I think the cottage fries are probably the most popular of those three. In the mid-19th century, uh, in the country, preparations of raw beef that had been chopped, chipped, ground, or even scraped were actually a common prescription for digestive issues. It was a New York doctor, James H. Salisbury, who suggested in 1867 that cooked beef patties might be as healthy uh, or healthier uh, than, uh, than eating your steak, uh, you know, on natural. And physicians very quickly adopted the so-called Salisbury steak. That's where the name came from. Around the same time, the first popular modern meat grinders, grinders for home use became widely available. Actually, Salisbury himself made a few extra bucks by endorsing one particular meat chopper that he called the American Chopper. Dave, where is where do you do this mix? Is it delivered to you pre-ground, or are you doing it right there on site? Well, we get it delivered to us pre-ground. You know, at one point in time, uh, we did experiment with grinding our own meat. Uh, thought that that might be something that we could could offer just to to improve the quality or increase the quality. I don't want to say improve because we love the quality. Uh, but increase the quality by a bit doing it ourselves. But our, you know, uh, the nice thing about operating in New York City is that you've got the best meat providers in the country here. We've got big meat houses, big, big operators. They're able to grind the meat at midnight. It is on your plate by noontime. So there's really no benefit to grinding it ourselves. Uh, and uh, this is a very key point. Uh, ground beef has to be used immediately after it's ground. It has to be served that day. Can never Absolutely. be fro- can never be frozen. Uh, I can tell you firsthand the burger at the Beach Cafe is never frozen. Now, Dave, did you have to go out and kind of surreptitiously scope out the competition? Because I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of good burgers in New York City. I'm not sure there's any burger as great as the uh, as the uh, the one at the beach cafe but did you have to do a little undercover work well i'm a big fan of um pj clark's 
J.G. Mellon's, Peter Luger's, uh, they all offer a great burger and have for many years. And I have uh, done some investigative work over the years to try to find out who's grinding the meat, who's providing the meat. And I did uh, manage to uh, suss that out uh, seven or eight years ago and did contact uh, one of the meat providers and said, look, I love this product that you're giving to these guys. I want the exact same product. I'm not going to mention the name, but uh, they said, no problem. Just order it by that name. So ever since then, uh, you know, we've been using that same meat. We do add a little bit of our own seasoning to it and a little bit of grass-fed butter. But I, I searched around for a few years to find out how I could duplicate the product that one of my uh, friendly competitors was using and uh, was fortunate enough to, to, to stumble upon it. So now we do uh, have access to that, to that grind and that formula, and uh, we use it uh, in our meat on a daily basis. Uh, again, folks, uh, the Beach Cafe, uh, a mecca of the Great Burger, that's at 1326 2nd Avenue in New York City. You're going to want to check that out. What's the cross street, Dave? 2nd and? One on the corner of 70th, 7-0, East 70th Street. Hi, it's Ernie Anastas. You know, your thoughts can affect how you feel, and how you feel can impact your thoughts. Addressing your mind and body connection is the key to improving your overall wellness. Bergen Newbridge Medical Center is the largest hospital in New Jersey, providing comprehensive, equitable, compassionate, and high-quality emergency inpatient and outpatient medical care, plus mental health services and substance use disorder treatment. The Bergen Newbridge team can address your total health needs in one convenient location. Call 201-225-7130 for an appointment or newbridgehealth.org. There you go. Uh, You definitely want to check that out. Now, I know you were, uh, from a business point of view, you were disadvantaged by the 2nd Avenue subway construction for a a number of years, a great civic improvement, but it did obviously cause some dislocation. Uh, But you have more than survived. That's the good news for everybody in the greater New York area. If you're going into the city, folks, there's no payola involved here, by the way. I don't eat or even drink for free at the at the uh, perfectly reasonably priced beach cafe i just know and love a great burger uh, one of my very good friends who's an athlete insists that if you can put away uh three burgers that the fourth one is free is that actually true well actually it's the stone burger if you eat two stone burgers the third one is free but you have to eat it at the Beach Cafe. We don't pack it to go. Uh, there is probably going to be a wait for tables, but it's well worth the wait. Uh, let's talk a little bit about libation because, uh, obviously, uh, any great saloon keeper understands uh, the necessity of running a good bar. Uh, what are New Yorkers drinking now? I mean, what, when you talk about, uh, uh, first, let's talk about the beer. I know you have a selection of beers on tap, but what are people ordering with their burger? Well, you know, you get you get a variety, really more beer than say uh, uh, wine, I would say. Um, but as far as drinking goes, the Aperol Spritz, um, in general, has become the most popular drink. It's a champagne drink with a little. Uh, a little bit of Aperol, and uh, 
it's the kind of drink that you can have that's not going to make you wobble too much when you walk out the door. When I first started at the Beach Cafe, I'll never forget uh, the, the two originators of the Beach Cafe, Tom and Bill White, really uh, two of the most important restaurant operators in the uh, the late half of the 20th century. Um, Bill White told me, he said, look, if you're going to be in this business and you're going to enjoy a drink every now and then, try to find something that isn't too full on the alcohol side. Stay away from the hard alcohol. Have a wine. Have a champagne. And it was great advice. I don't really drink all that much here. Uh, I'm on the job. I'm here seven days and seven nights. So uh, I think I would tell all restaurateurs that people thinking about getting into the business, stay away from the hard stuff. It's put many a great restaurateur out of business. And as far as our customers, you know, we sell a lot of wine. Uh, the, uh, the drink of the moment, again, is the Aperol Spritz. And uh, we've always got great beers on tap and bottles. We've got quite a variety. And, and, and really, beer is one of those items that people just go across the board from IPAs to Pilsners. And we sell a lot of Guinness. There's really no one beer that's jumping out at the moment, I would say. Now, I can also attest to the fact that the Beach Cafe turns out a terrific martini. The exact origins of the martini are unclear. The name may derive from the martini brand of vermouth, dry vermouth that is commonly used. But another popular theory suggests it may have evolved from a cocktail called the Martinez, served sometime in the early 1860s at the Occidental Hotel in San Francisco, which people frequently took as an evening ferry uh, from the nearby town of Martinez, California. Alternatively, residents of Martinez say the bartender in their town called uh, the drink the martini, while another source says that it actually originated in the Knickerbocker Hotel right there in New York City, where there was, yes, a bartender called uh, named a Martinez uh, is the have you seen Dave a, a rising popularity uh, in the martini uh, and uh, is it more gin or is it more vodka? Well, definitely the uh, the martini would be more vodka for us. I do see uh, a little bit of gin. I would say it's probably ten to one vodka over gin. I know that you have a special uh, martini recipe that you uh, the, the Nixonian. Uh, martini, which you may want to you know, share that with your with your listeners, um, and uh, that's that's quite popular. But um, you know, we we've always been uh, always sold a lot of martinis. The Beach Cafe is located on the Upper East Side. It's smack dab in the middle of you know some of the most uh, I would say dignified and educated people in the country, and uh, they have been uh, well informed and and introduced to that drink, and uh, it's it's really been uh, something that the, the people are continuing to promote. Yeah, you make uh, reference uh, to uh, Richard Nixon's personal martini uh, formula, his personal recipe. He lived on the Upper East Side, not so very far from where the Beach Cafe is located. 
Uh, and uh, it goes like this. You, you take a jar of olives. You drain the olive juice. You, you fill it with water. Uh, you replace the cap. You shake it vigorously. You drain the water. Then you fill it with uh, dry vermouth, usually martini and rossi, uh, and you put it in the refrigerator. You obviously have taken two martini glasses, splashed them with water, uh, and put them uh, into the freezer. And you take your, uh, your martini, your cocktail shaker, which can be either aluminum or it could be sterling silver, uh, and you put in a combination of ice cubes and cracked ice, uh, and then you fill uh, the martini shaker, the cocktail shaker, with your choice of gin or vodka. Now, the gin purists object at this point. The gin purists say that if you're making a gin martini, and you just heard Dave Goodside say that uh, that the preference at, uh, at his saloon is 10 to 1, vodka over gin. But if you're making a gin martini, the gin purists say that shaking the gin in a cocktail shaker with ice bruises the gin, changing the flavor. I'm not a gin drinker, so I wouldn't know, but those folks suggest a cocktail pitcher uh, and mixing the gin on ice in a pitcher. But I go with the cocktail shaker. I fill it with uh, vodka. Yes, I will admit. I hope they don't arrest me. Yes, I, I like Russian vodka. Uh, Russian standard be my current favorite, but then you shake very, very, very vigorously. Uh, if the outside of the cocktail shaker is not so cold that it doesn't slightly kind of freeze burn your hand, well then you're not you're not shaking vigorously enough. You then uh, remove the chilled glass from the freezer. You pour this concoction uh, into the martini glass, uh, as Nixon himself pointed out to me. If there are not tiny shards of ice on the on the surface of the martini, well, then you haven't shaken it vigorously enough. You return to the aforementioned refrigerated jar of olives that are now marinated uh, in dry vermouth. You drop in one or two, and there you have it, the perfect martini, which Richard Nixon referred to as a silver bullet. So when I had the first one, which he mixed for me uh, actually at his townhouse on the Upper East Side of New York, this is prior to his moving to Saddle River, New Jersey, I said, wow, Mr. President, this is really good. And he said, yeah, I got the recipe from Winston Churchill. So, uh, Dave, uh, how do they go about making a martini there at the Beach Cafe? Oh, wow. Now you're putting me on the spot. I'm not a classic classically trained bartender you know my specialty is seeing you at the door and making sure that you get your table whoever you are uh so i'm i'm not going to pretend to give you the ins and outs of making a martini i've i've consumed many but made very few and uh let, let me say this. I do know what Dave is telling the truth because he is, uh, he does kind of serve as uh, the maitre d'. He's not just the owner, but Dave is uh, not by any means an absentee restaurateur. Uh, he is on the scene checking constantly for perfection. Uh, you can have him take, move your table. He will make sure you are well accommodated. He will make recommendations uh, on the menu. If you're, 
not a meat eater, and there are some among us who are not. Uh, what what do you like? What's the most popular dish for those who don't eat meat? You've got some great fish and seafood selections as well, as I recall. Well, as I said, the burger really is by far and away uh, the biggest selling item by at least ten, by ten times. Uh, but if the uh, if you're not a meat eater, then the probably next most popular dish is the pan roasted salmon, which is something that. Uh, many restaurants do make a pan-roasted salmon, but the way we make it is a little bit different. Our our oven cooks from the top down as, as opposed to the heat coming up through the bottom, and this allows us to crisp the top of the salmon so it gets a nice and, 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 and charred or crispy on the outside and still medium rare on the inside. And um, people swear by this salmon, uh, and they've... You know, we have every restaurant around us sells salmon, but people tell us that there's something very different and very special about the way we cook it. It's very simple, uh, just a little olive oil and some lemon, salt and pepper, and that's it. But it's the heat coming from the top down that makes that special crust on it. Uh, the Beach Cafe, folks, a very civilized place, uh, athletes, uh, politicians, celebrities, it's one of Cindy Adams, the queen of gossip, who's right here on WABC. It's one of her favorite haunts when she goes out. Uh, Dave, you've got to accommodate a lot of different people. Uh, and I know that you went through some tough times because of the subway construction. But now, uh, if folks go on a Friday or Saturday night, things are pretty busy, are they not? Yes, they are. I mean, you can expect to wait for a table not not too long. But, uh, you know, we've always been a very popular place. When you're in business for over 50 years, you know, that's one of the fortunate byproducts is that people get to know you, uh, not just the neighbors who live upstairs and around the corner, but people come in from uh, out of the Upper East Side, and uh, they're, they're happy to wait at the bar, enjoy a drink, visit some people. A lot of people that come in meet other people they don't know because there's a certain like-minded thread that runs through the restaurant. And people uh, enjoy that part about the, the community of meeting people at the bar. And um, it's it's really a great place. It's more than just uh, sustenance. It's an entertainment experience. You never know who you're going to meet or see at the Beach Cafe on any given night. I mean, this was a regular spot for a lot of people in, uh, in, in sports, in movies, in theater, in music, in politics. I mean, Arthur Miller used to come here once a week, Frank Sinatra, Liza Minnelli, Dave DeBuscher, uh, Mary Tyler Moore used to make it here uh, a lot. Every mayor in the last four decades, I've been there that long, has been to the Beach Cafe. Um, it's captains of industry. It's the people that work at the post office up the road. I mean, it's really a big mix of people. And we put a premium on just people that uh, are nice to one another and can enjoy a good meal, fair price, a good service, and we just try to turn you on. As Bill and Tom White would always tell me, you got to turn the people on before they leave that restaurant, and that's how we do it. Well, folks, uh, uh, the the great burger, the stone burger, but all the burgers at the Beach Cafe are a constant uh, at a time that the 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 really famous and classic Waldorf Astoria remains boarded up. Uh, the 21 Club is no more. 
some of the great red sauce joints, some of the greatest Italian restaurants in New York, now gone, now a distant memory. Uh, the Beach Cafe and the burger there uh, is uh, is a standard. Uh, it is the old, reliable. Dave, I, la- final question. I know a, a lot of people have told you that maybe it's time to quit New York. Maybe you should close up up there and move down here to Florida, maybe West Palm Beach. But because of your dedication to the city and your dedication to the beach, as the aficionados call it, uh, you're sticking it out in New York. Uh, why not open a, you know, another outpost here in South Florida so I could enjoy uh, a stone burger now and then? Well, I get a lot of offers from people down south, especially in Florida, West Palm Beach and Palm Beach area, saying to bring the operation down, bring the model, let's copy it. But I love New York. You know, New York is the the greatest big city in the world. And, uh, you know, we've, we've gone through some tough times. Uh, certainly there are challenges happening at this very moment. But I believe in New York. I do not believe in the multiple restaurant concept i mean it works for some people but what we do is very hands-on it's very personal and i think that uh, you can't put yourself in two places at one time so uh, until technology can clone me i'm staying in new york all right folks that's dave goodside the last of the old-time saloon keepers in the tradition of Toots Shore, joining us for a discussion of the history and search of the great American hamburger. Thank you, Dave Goodside, for joining us on the Roger Stone Show. Roger, thank you. It's a a pleasure always to to talk with you and an honor to be on the show. Call me anytime. Looking forward to seeing you up here in New York soon. Many thanks. Folks, if you're just tuning in, this is WABC Radio. We are uh, the uh, the station that is making AM radio great again. You can find us at 770 on the AM dial, uh, or if you don't live in the greater New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area, you can always find us at wabcradio.com where we're streaming worldwide. So right now, go to your cell phone and either text or call one of your friends, someone in your family, someone in your circle of acquaintances, uh, and tell them to tune in to The Roger Stone Show right here at WABC Radio. Richard Nixon. Well, I'm not a crook. Ronald Reagan. Tear down this wall. George W. Bush. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. And Donald Trump. And a friend of mine for a long time, he uh, only likes politics. If you ask him about how are the Yankees doing, he has no interest. If you ask him almost anything, he likes politics and he's a professional at the highest level Roger Stone. All of these presidents relied on one man to secure their seat in the Oval Office. That man is Roger Stone. This is The Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. This is The Roger Stone Show on WABC Radio. You can always find us at 770 on the AM dial. Uh, otherwise, if you're out of town, you can go to wabcradio.com because we're streaming worldwide. We're here every Sunday from 3 to 5 where we talk a mix of news, history, sports, politics, style, culture, food. We're all over the place. Uh, and now joining me is documentary filmmaker and author Joel Gilbert. 
Joel Gilbert has written both a book uh, and produced a new documentary uh, based on the theory which I share that ultimately the 2024 nominee of the Democratic Party for President of the United States will be not Joe Biden, but in fact, Michelle Obama, the former First Lady of the United States. Now, I have said for some time, I've written it, I've said it, I said it in a speech in Palm Beach to the Turning Point USA conference uh, two weeks ago, that I believed uh, that the the combined burden uh, of the impact of Joe Biden's policies, uh, record gas prices, a 76% increase in the cost of basic groceries, ravaging inflation that is really hurting the buying power of working families, uh, a disastrous foreign policy uh, in which weakness uh, provokes aggression, in which we have 370,000 homeless veterans in this country, yet we are shipping billions of dollars uh, to the war effort in Ukraine. And when the U.S. Senate is offered an amendment by Senator Rand Paul to have a government inspector general keep track of exactly where that money is going and how it is being spent, the U.S. Senate actually defeats that amendment. Why would any senator not want to go, not want to know how U.S. tax dollars are being spent? Uh, now you combine that with Joe Biden's obvious infirmities, the fact that he often seems confused, uh, that he shakes hands with people that don't exist, uh, that he is, uh, keeps falling down in public, uh, that he, the poor man seems bewildered. Uh, I don't wish him any ill will, but I, I think it's elder abuse. I really don't think he is up to what is the toughest and most difficult job uh, in the world, president of the leader of the free world, of the Western world. And now you have the burgeoning scandals surrounding him. Uh, House Republicans have now produced hard evidence of uh, extortion, uh, bribery, money laundering, uh, uh, influence peddling, illegal lobbying, including multi-million dollar payments wired from Russia, China, Romania, uh, 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 and uh, Ukraine to members of the Biden family, including Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, Jim Biden, uh, Joe Biden's brother. So I think the stench of scandal, Biden's inability to perform, uh, as a candidate, uh, and uh, the disastrous impact uh, of his policies mean that the Democratic power structure, President uh, Barack Obama, without any question, the most popular and influential Democrat in the country today, uh, will decide to give Joe Biden the hook. Uh, and uh, I think that the most obvious candidate to replace uh, to, to place a Joe Biden uh, is, in fact, Michelle Obama. Joel Gilbert, documentary filmmaker and author, uh, who has both a great book and companion documentary entitled Michelle Obama 2024, joins us now to break this down. Joel, welcome to The Roger Stone Show. Hey, great to be here. I think you did a wonderful job of summing up why Joe Biden is such a liability for the Democrats. 
The only thing I would differ with you on is that uh, it's not the toughest job in the world. He made it an easy job. He spends 40% of his time on vacation on the beach or in Delaware, sleeps late every day, and I think you make the argument he doesn't really run anything. He's more of a figurehead, but he's a terrible liability to Democrats. Nobody wants him. And in my film and book, I make the case, and I'm glad you agree, that uh, I think Michelle Obama has been preparing to be the 2024 Democrat nominee for several years. I noticed, and I cover this in my book and film, that she's pretty much following the exact same formula that Barack did to become president. Barack had a voter registration organization he ran in Chicago called Project Vote before he ran for president. 2016, Michelle started When We All Vote, running around the country registering voters. Barack was the keynote speaker for John Kerry in 2004, introduced the candidate. Sure enough, Michelle was Joe Biden's keynote speaker at the Democrat convention, introduced him and endorsed him. And uh, lastly, Barack wrote two autobiographies before he ran for president, was Dreams for My Father and The Audacity of Hope. Michelle wrote two autobiographies, uh, Becoming and The Light We Carry, and these are very important for political people. They like to rewrite history and write a political document that the media can simply quote them on, and they don't have to be responsible for any of their, their story or their history. So that's what I did. I completed a complete deep dive into Michelle's background. It turns out it's completely different than what she said. And I make the case also, in, in recent months, the Democrats have set it up for Michelle by moving their first primary out of Iowa, where she would have had to campaign in 100 counties, to South Carolina, where 50% of the Democrat uh, primary electorate are African-American. It's also a state that Michelle claims as her adopted home state from 2008 because her grandparents are from South Carolina. And the Democrat National Convention is in Chicago, of all places, for a hometown girl convention. So I think it's all in the cards. I'm predicting that uh, November will be the key month because December 23rd is the deadline for getting signatures together to be on the Democrat primary ballots. And I think November Biden will drop out for health or any number of reasons. And that's when the party will turn to Michelle, who's prepared herself for that moment. Uh, I've kind of revised my opinion. I thought at one time uh, that the burden of Joe Biden, the political burden of him, would become so great uh, that he would have to resign uh, and uh, that he would uh, reserve the right to pardon himself uh, and his brother and his son and other key members of his family and his circle. Uh, then I thought if he if he resisted that, if he resisted a call by the chieftains and the uh, and the leader of the Democratic Party, in this case, Barack Obama, uh, they might go so far as to remove him under the 25th Amendment. Uh, that requires a vote of the majority of the cabinet, uh, plus the sitting vice president. Uh, I've now kind of revised my opinion uh, uh, in two regards. Uh, I think that he is not going to give up that pardon power easily. Uh, these scandals are very real despite the very best attempts uh, by the mainstream media to minimize them or to censor them or to hide them. Uh, this is uh, really egregious corruption at a level that we have never seen before. Uh, we are going to talk about that uh, on the show today with David Schoen, uh, who was one of the Trump impeachment lawyers. Uh, we see a direct correlation between all of this bad news breaking about the revelations regarding the Biden crime family uh, and these recent charges 
against President Donald Trump. But I now agree with you that they will keep Joe Biden in place as long as they possibly can, but that he will announce probably in late November before the December filing deadlines to actually place his name on the ballot in the Democratic primaries and caucus states that remain in their lineup. Uh, but then they have to explain why they're passing over the sitting vice president. That would be Kamala Harris. Now, I have Democrat friends who tell me the truth that they don't think Kamala Harris is any more capable of winning a general election than Joe is. Uh, but within the dynamics of that party, uh, where minorities and particularly African-Americans are a very important base constituency, I believe the only way they could pass over uh, a sitting vice president who is a woman of color is with a, another far more popular woman of color, uh, and that would be Michelle Obama. Uh, Joel, uh, Michelle Obama tells us that she doesn't like politics and she has no interest whatsoever in running. Uh, how, what do you say about that? Uh, well, look, all politicians say they hate politics. They like the power part of it, but they don't like the politics part of it. So, look, Michelle came up with that line, I hate politics, back in 2008. You might remember that she was the co-candidate with Barack. She was running around the country giving speeches to huge audiences. She said things like, Barack and I and our campaign and what we're going to do in the White House. She was the co-candidate. And she would say the nastiest things every night. She'd say, you can't pay your mortgage. Don't get sick in this country. You can't afford food. And she kind of went over the top one time. She said, for the first time in my life, I'm proud of my country because Barack won a primary. Now, she said a lot nastier things than that, but the media picked up on that. And that's when the whole country kind of got in a firestorm and started paying attention to what the hell is she saying. And uh, that's when the campaign came to Michelle and said, look, we're going to lose because of you. People are going to hate you. So Michelle got a speechwriter that night, and she came up with a new line, which was, I hate politics, I just want to be the mom-in-chief. So that's how the media sold and papered over Michelle's very political uh, and negative background. Michelle is a very political person. Her father was a precinct captain in Chicago working for the Democrat Party machine. She partially grew up in Jesse Jackson's house because uh, she was friends with his daughter, Santita, in school with her when he was running for president. So she's always been into politics. She married a politician. So she's actually a better politician than Barack. She's a better speaker. She comes across more authentic. And uh, she solves the problem of Kamala Harris. Uh, not, not that it was too big. I don't think the black community is so attached to her, being that she grew up in Canada. Her mother's from India. Uh, Michelle, is a, to them, is a very authentic uh, member of the black community. Now, in my film and book, Michelle Obama 2024, I go into the fact that Michelle actually is not a friend of the black community. She had spent her childhood running away from the black community for education, always going to schools with white kids and avoiding black schools, and how working for the mayor of Chicago, she knocked down the homes of 20,000 black people, made them homeless, working for the, uh, for, with Valerie Jarrett as assistant planning commissioner, and then as um, working for the University of Chicago Medical Center, Michelle's job was to kick black people out of the emergency room so they couldn't have access to health care. She'd ship them back to the south side in these vans. It was illegal. It was called patient dumping. So Michelle made millions of dollars exploiting the black community. 
So as a politician, though, she makes up these phony stories to manipulate them into supporting her for power by claiming, hey, I'm just one of these ordinary black folks. I suffer discrimination. None of it, none of it is true. Uh, now, I, I want to be very clear that I, I don't think this is a joke. I think people who make uh, raw jokes about Michelle uh, Obama's uh, gender or her sexual identity really are making an enormous mistake. Uh, she would be a very, very formidable candidate. She would be a very, very uh, popular candidate. She would be a very, very well-funded candidate. Uh, and the Obamas uh, can not only raise $100 million literally overnight, uh, far more than that, uh, but they can also easily ensure that they quickly collect the signatures necessary for her to be on the ballot. So uh, for those who find this idea shocking, or think it is some kind of joke, based on my 45 years plus in American politics, I'm saying that uh, the American people need to take this very, very seriously. She would be a, a very formidable uh, and difficult candidate for any Republican candidate. Uh, in this case, I, I'm virtually certain that Donald J. Trump will be the Republican candidate, despite uh, the war against him uh, in a corrupted and weaponized judicial system. Uh, but I think she's going to be tough to beat. Joel, what is the what is the key to defeating Michelle Obama? Uh, well, first of all, you're correct. She's the most popular person in the country, if not the whole world. And certainly the Democrats are trending away from white males. They appoint everywhere they can. They appoint uh, ethnic minorities, blacks, females, uh, to, to positions because Donald Trump made such inroads in the black and minority community and delivered so much that, that the Repu uh, Democrats had promised for 60 years and didn't do, they felt a need to prop up and put uh, minorities in positions of power, like the U.N. ambassador, press secretary, minority leader in the House, head of the Joint Chiefs, under the very condescending idea and say, look, we have people that look like you, so give us power. A little insulting, but that's their policy. So Michelle just checks all those boxes. Uh, so yes, uh, Michelle has the uh, the power to to reach these people, and uh, certainly they get to use not only race but also sex. If you oppose what Michelle is saying, well, you must be not only racist but sexist. So they get to use those weapons. That's the Democrat Party today, and. Um, Certainly the, uh, the foolishness around saying that Michelle's not female is completely not true. It was just a joke by Joan Rivers that kind of, kind of went out of hand online. Uh, but Michelle's a very formidable candidate, and you can certainly watch uh, the entire real history of Michelle Obama. You can live stream my movie, Michelle Obama 2024, on Amazon Prime Movies or SalemNow.com, and then the book and the DVDs are on Amazon.com. Uh, I, this is a great book and a great documentary. Joel, I'm going to ask you before we finish one more time to tell folks where they can get it. Now, a major news story broke this past week, which I think could potentially be the fly in the ointment uh, if there is indeed a plan to, uh, to give Joe Biden the hook and replace him with Michelle Obama. Uh, the Obama's personal chef, Tafari Campbell, uh, who uh, evidently lives within their compound there in Martha's Vineyard, uh, drowned on Sunday, July 23rd. 
This story broke on Monday, July 24th. Uh, and since that time, uh, the, the New York Post reported that the uh, investigation into Campbell's death has been closed. The Massachusetts State Police uh, and the Edgartown, Massachusetts Police have uh, insisted that Mr. Campbell was paddleboarding with another female staffer at the time of his drowning, but they declined to identify who that person is. Uh, on the forms that are available under Massachusetts uh, Freedom of Information Act laws, that information is curiously left blank. Uh, we were told uh, that President Barack Obama uh, was not on, and his wife, were not on Martha's Vineyard. Then that was amended, and we were told that they were on the vineyard, but they weren't home. Well, the vineyard's not that large. We were initially told uh, that the that the distress call to the police uh, did not come from the Obama's compound on Martha's Vineyard, uh, that it came from a house four, day, four homes away. Now we're told uh, differently that the call did come uh, from uh, the the Obama compound, but the again the state police and the Edgartown police declined to identify who it was that made that call. Uh, the UK Daily Mail is out this past week with a shocking story in which they say uh, that there is a cover-up. Uh, reading here from the directly from the UK Daily Mail, uh, Massachusetts State Police are covering up information about the drowning of Barack Obama's personal shelf, labeling the incident an accident, but continuing to withhold information under the guise of a, quote, ongoing investigation. Again, I'm quoting from the DailyMail.com. It's been 11 days since Tafari Campbell drowned in a pond bordering on the former president's estate, but authorities are rejecting requests for even the most basic facts, including the identity of the sole witness uh, and the identity of the 911 caller. The state police are citing a public records law exemption that they say allows the police to withdraw any information that could jeopardize an active investigation. Yet they tell the New York Post that the investigation has been closed. The head of uh, the New England region's largest First Amendment organization coalition told the Daily Mail that the police are abusing that law given the fact that they have already ruled out any sort of foul play. So the only matter pending is a toxicology report that would show whether or not Campbell had drugs in his system or suffered some other type of medical episode. Uh, the burden is on law enforcement to show how the investigation may be jeopardized by releasing additional information, said Justin Silverman, executive director of the New England First Amendment Coalition, a news organization. They are not doing that right now. This really flies in the face of the Massachusetts public records law, he said. Uh, now, the other uh, anomaly here that I find uh, interesting is we are told uh, that Mr. Campbell was paddleboarding with another person. We are told that he was 100 feet from the shore uh, and that at that location, uh, the pond is eight 
feet deep. Well, I have studied the bathymetric map put out by the Massachusetts state government and the U.S. government, and it shows that the depth of the pond does not reach eight feet until well beyond a point that is 100 feet offshore. So anything under 100 feet, uh, the height of the water would be closer to three feet, meaning Mr. Campbell would be able to simply stand up. Mr. Campbell himself, uh, the late chef, posted a video to his Instagram uh, account that shows that he was a very able, uh, indeed a strong swimmer. He's posted uh, a video of him swimming, actually wearing flippers. So, Joel, what do you make of all this? I think uh, there's a lot of uh, Clinton-esque mysterious things going on because the story keeps changing. We keep getting facts and uh, contradictions. And uh, the Obamas definitely put some kind of uh, blackout on the information. For example, Michelle Obama took a full week to even make a comment. Normally on Twitter, she comments on everything the same day, affirmative action, you name it. Took her a week. She just posted on Instagram, I will miss my friend Tafari. The emptiness is hard, but I promise to stay strong, keep living, and honor your legacy. So it's just a lot of weird things. And when you've got so many weird things, there's always more to find out. So if we found out that Chef Tafari was speaking to book agents about writing a book at some point, I would not be surprised. Uh, It's pretty strange that they took the White House sous chef home with them, but then I asked the obvious question. Uh, because I've looked at his Instagram account. Um, he has a wife and kids, but where were they? Where are they? Where do they live? It's uh, extre- they- extremely weird. What's, what's he doing living in Martha's Vineyard? Uh, Assume with, with some mysterious uh, female uh, uh, who's also a staffer for the Obamas. What's her real relationship that she's paddleboarding with this guy? So I think there's more to find out. Uh, unfortunately, don't forget that Joe Biden won in 2020, despite the, fa- the laptop being out there, despite all the uh, information we had at the time about him taking bribes from Ukraine, and he still won. So whether this will have an effect on Michelle's, uh, what I believe will be her upcoming candidacy, I would think that it probably won't affect it in any way. But there's a lot more to know from this incident, I believe. All right. Well, I just have a feeling that we're never going to see that toxicology report. We're never going to see that autopsy. I think we're going to have the same kind of censorship that we have had uh, in the matter of the Hunter Biden laptop. Unfortunately, uh, we are out of time. Town, uh, pardon me, we're out of time. Uh, I'm Roger Stone. This is the Roger Stone Show. Let me thank my guest, Joel Gilbert. Joel, tell us one more time where people can get your great book and your great documentary, Michelle Obama. 2024. Yes, uh, just go to SalemNow.com to live stream the movie, SalemNow.com, or Amazon Prime Video to stream the movie, or get the book and DVD on Amazon.com. All right, Joel Gilbert, many thanks for joining us on The Roger Stone Show. Richard Nixon. Well, I'm not a crook. Ronald Reagan. Tear down this wall. George W. Bush. I can hear you. The rest of the world. And Donald Trump. And a friend of mine for a long time, he uh, only likes politics. If you ask him about how are the Yankees doing, he has no interest. If you ask him almost anything, he likes politics and he's a professional at the highest level. Roger Stone. All of these presidents relied on one man to secure their seat in the Oval Office. That man 
is Roger Stone. This is the Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. It was a spectacle uh, this week to see a former president of the United States uh, charged with what I think are thought crimes, a clear case of election interference by charging uh, the former president with uh, using his First Amendment rights to question uh, the honesty and the integrity of the last presidential election. Joining me now to break this incredible moment in American history is David Schoen. David Schoen is a criminal defense attorney uh, who most famously represented President Donald Trump in the second impeachment trial in the U.S. Senate. You've probably seen David on the Laura Ingram show uh, with Sean Hannity, uh, but also on CNN and MSNBC. He has no fear of going into the lion's den. I should point out that David is not a Republican. Uh, He's represented uh, the Democratic Party in some important voting rights cases. Uh, He has represented other non-Republicans in ballot access questions. Uh, He is, in my mind, probably the most brilliant legal strategist and analyst uh, in the country, and I'm honored to have him join us here on The Roger Stone Show on WABC Radio. David, welcome to the Roger Stone Show. Thank you, but the honor is mine. Thank you very much. So first, uh, tell me uh, your impression of uh, these charges uh, by uh, by uh, Special Counsel Jack Smith. Yeah, it's hard to know where to start, frankly, but uh, I think to sum it up, I would say it's uh, nothing more than a, a very poor political screed uh, with two purposes in mind. One, to get in front of a D.C. jury, uh, knowing the comments that several of the district judges have made about President Trump, knowing the voting history of that uh, venue and so on. And uh, secondly, just to I think this philosophy of, you know, keeping to try to pin Donald Trump down to uh, deflect his energy from the election and so on. I think you're going to see a fourth indictment coming after this one now in Georgia. But um uh, I'll tell you this. Interesting to me is the it's not surprising. There's a polarized reaction to this uh, to this so-called indictment um, It's polarized, much like the country is polarized on all related questions. But I noticed uh, different a little bit in this case. There's a piece in The New York Times from this week by David Leonard, who's uh, quite an anti-Trumpster. And uh, he said he sort of bemoaned with resignation the idea that. Uh, you know, we had our chance in the impeachment trial. We should have convicted him then. We missed. This effort by Jack Smith is truly a novel approach, uh, which I read to mean, and I think he certainly meant, um, you know, less less than well advised. And uh, he said he acknowledges that uh, even experts disagree over whether the, the evidence is strong or not strong. Um, the fact that the New York Times would put out such a thing is remarkable. But I think that, you know, if we were to break down the indictment, I'd have a number of specific comments on different theories that they've got. Uh, well, let, let's go ahead and do that. T- tell me what you think. Well, let's take, you know, one one of the examples. People constantly focus on this idea that uh, President Trump tried to railroad uh, Vice President Pence into doing something that was clearly illegal and that he clearly didn't have the authority to do. 
and so on. Let me tell you what uh, a voting rights expert and election law expert um, recognized around the country as such said in an interview, and certainly not a Trump person, an anti-Trump person. He said, for anyone to believe that exactly what the vice president's role is under the Electoral Count Act and that there's no controversy about it, um, absolutely doesn't know what they're talking about. He said uh, the 12th Amendment you know, discusses the issue, but there's a lack of clarity. I'm quoting now. There's a lack of clarity on exactly who does the counting, how it is handled and possible objections. So the idea that, you know, we would charge a crime here that's related to that initiative, that is trying to convince Vice President Pence, if that's what happened, that he shouldn't certify the vote because there are some real questions out there. Um, we don't criminalize that kind of conduct, a disagreement over legal parameters. That, that's one part of it. But in, in terms of the other, there are so many defenses uh, to this, to these charges. Um, I think so what people have to remember first and foremost is every one of the four charges requires an intent to have done something the law forbids. Um, very important. Two are conspiracy charges. Conspiracy is, is a specific intent crime. Two or more people have to have agreed to do something they knew the law forbid. That doesn't apply to anything that happened here. The obstruction charges, one of them is a conspiracy to obstruct, which again has that specific intent. And the other requires what they call a corrupt state of mind, that he corruptly intended to obstruct the official proceeding of getting the votes counted and all of that. At the heart of all of that, then, is what was Donald Trump's state of mind. Anyone who knows Donald Trump, anyone who was around him, knows that he believed, understood, and was firmly committed to the idea based on advice that he got from the experts associated around him that he, was, he and his supporters were the victim of election fraud. Whether one agrees with that or disagrees with that, that was his firm belief, and any actions were based on that firm belief, and it was reinforced to him on a daily basis by data provided by the people hired to investigate it. An investigation is what had to happen if there was some evidence of that that came out, and I'll tell you why I say that. There's an absolute constitutional obligation under Article 2, Section 1 of our Constitution, and if nothing else comes out of this case uh, – I hope something positive does, and that is that people learned to know the Constitution and to love it, because it's very important. We have to return to it at all times. I never go anyplace without it. But Article 2, Section 1 talks about the duties of a president, and in that section, it tells us how a president is elected. That's the original text, tells us how a president is elected. And then there's a clause, one of two times it appears, that it requires the president to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. And so if a president has information from multiple sources that there's been fraud in the election, improprieties in the election, remember we had COVID regulations in place, all sorts of new procedures for mail-in, different rules for absentee ballots, rules varied among the states, um, rules, by the way, I'll get to this in a second, but rules about electors vary. Um, and so if he has that information and his constitutional obligation is to take care that the laws be faithfully executed, one could easily argue that he had no choice but to do exactly what he did, and that is get the information and be prepared with alternative electors if the information were correct. But you can be sure President Trump didn't come up with the idea of alternative electors and all of these things that they charge in the, in the indictment. This came from experts, from lawyers, legal advice. Um, 
one has to be uh, understand again that there's complete disarray in the laws around the states on how electors are chosen and what their obligation is. I think 29 states plus the District of Columbia, for example, bind electors to vote for the candidate who won by the popular vote in the state. When I say electors, what I mean is, as you well know, um, maybe not all the listeners do, but hopefully they will after this case plays its way out. You know, each state, you don't directly vote for the president. We have the electoral college. So each state, each political party um, appoints by different methods. There are many different ways they do it among the states. 33 of them, for example, appoint electors based on a party convention. So the Republican Party, Democratic Party has a convention. They choose the electors to represent the voters of that state in the presidential election. And if a Republican candidate wins the presidential election, then the electors from that state in the Electoral College cast their vote for that candidate. Except in 21 states, they're not bound to vote for that candidate. You could have, um, under state law, 21 states, you could have uh, an elector chosen by the Republican Party who says, I'm not going to support that candidate in the Electoral College. So all of these things vary. Um, It's a complete, uh, uh, you know, crapshoot, you might say. But anyway, the point is, the idea that President Trump would have known all the rules and regulations for electors, nonsense. We don't criminalize conduct where it's based on, if it even occurred, where it's based on advice of counsel and differences in views on legal questions that have troubled legal scholars and still continue to trouble them today. So that's kind of overall um, what I have to say about the indictment. Uh, Folks, if you're just tuning in, this is the Roger Stone Show on WABC Radio. You can find us at 770 on the AM dial, uh, or we are always streaming worldwide at WABCRadio.com. We're interviewing David Schoen, criminal defense attorney who represented former President Donald Trump in the second Ukrainian impeachment uh, for a detailed discussion uh, of the events of this past week. David, do you believe, uh, based on your reading of the recent indictment, uh, that this should be immediately challenged uh, as to law and that a motion should be made to dismiss it since the most recent Supreme Court cases seem to require a set a requirement for fraud uh, to have a specific victim? Oh, a- absolutely. I, I just want to uh, correct one thing. I'm speaking fast and- the Ukrainian one was the first uh, impeachment. But, um, I stand corrected. Yeah, minor <laughs> you know this stuff. Um, I, uh, yes, no, I, I, there have to be a number of motions, but you've hit one of them right on the head. Um, it's interesting. I had a conversation with Governor McDonnell, former governor of Virginia, earlier today. And, uh, you know, he was the victim of the abuse of the fraud statute by Jack Smith's team originally. He's one of the classic cases in which, in my view, this Jack Smith, the special counsel now, has shown horrible judgment. John Edwards' case is another one in which the lawyers met with him, showed him uh, abundant evidence as to why he should not charge John Edwards uh, with what he did, and he went forward anyway, showing a terrible lack of judgment in the credibility of witnesses and in fundamental prudential principles of prosecution. But, yes, here there should be a motion to dismiss based on, uh, as a matter of law, that the crime charged, even if uh, accepted as true, doesn't fit within what the Supreme Court has said uh, constitutes fraud under the federal statute. Um, I think that, you know, I personally think they have to at least consider a recusal motion. Now, as I mentioned, 
a number of the judges uh, in this district have made absolutely inappropriate, extraneous comments that you well know about Judge Amy Berman Jackson. Um, in your own experience, uh, went well beyond the pale in making uh, inappropriate comments, uh, politically based comments. But anyway, focusing just on this judge, Judge Chutkin, who has the Trump case now, I have a case before her. It's been pending for a number of years. Uh, I've found her to be very fair. She ruled in my client's uh, favor, originally dismissing the case, and then the Court of Appeals reversed um, after a large firm uh, who also was in the case argued the appeal. Um, and now it's pending before her for three years or more, fully briefed. But I found her to be a fair person. But in, when it comes to Trump, it's like all bets are off. She has made comments. She wrote an opinion, a well-known one now, in which she said uh, presidents are not kings and Donald Trump is not a president. Um, but uh, she went beyond that. Uh, that kind of rhetoric, you know, one might say doesn't support recusal. Uh, it's close, but but I think what does is uh, remember the recusals. One of the recusal statutes is based on the appearance of partiality or the appearance of bias or a lack of impartiality. And in sentencing one of the January six defendants, uh, she's made a finding, an express finding, that he didn't do what he did for any reason really other than for one man, uh, his belief that Donald Trump wanted him to do this. I think that's the kind of thing that's got to appear to a fair and reasonable objective observer as someone who's made up her mind about Donald Trump and specifically with respect to the events of January 6th. You know, Roger, one thing I really never understood, and I think it's done such a disservice to this country, I know you've spoken about it, is that all of the rules change when it comes to Donald Trump or anyone associated with him. And so we saw on the Mueller committee people like Andrew Weissman, uh, Greg Andres on there, people who were just uh, vicious prosecutors. Weissman has made a career out of wanting to see Trump get prosecuted. The American public can't accept the results of any investigation as an investigation when you put people on it who have made up their minds, putting Congressman Thompson as the head of the January 6th committee. Complete sham. This is a man who just before that sued Donald Trump personally, claiming he suffered injuries from the events of January 6th and that Donald Trump was personally responsible. And they named him, Pelosi named him to head up the committee to investigate who was responsible for the events of January 6th and then populated that committee with all Trump haters violating House rules and protocol and so on. Now you put prosecutors on this case, on Jack Smith's team in Florida, Karen Gilbert, been exoriated by Judge Gold down there for her misconduct in a case. Um, and you have J.P. Cooney and Molly Gaston, two prosecutors on this new D.C. indictment who engaged in horrible misconduct in the Steve Bannon case. I have a sanctions motion pending against them. And the judge already has said he wants to take up the issue of their misconduct. He's concerned about it and he's concerned that they don't seem concerned about it. So if all of the lawyers available in this country, why is it that the powers that be keep choosing people who are avowed Trump haters and are willing to break the rules to get him. How can the American people possibly accept anything that comes out of those kinds of proceedings? Well, the judge in question is a major donor to Barack Obama's presidential campaign. Uh, her husband is also a major donor to Barack Obama's presidential campaign. Her husband was also elected as a federal judge uh, as she was after making those donations. Her mother-in-law is also a major donor to Barack Obama's campaign. 
Uh, I have read public reports uh, that the judge worked at the same law firm uh, as Hunter Biden. That is unconfirmed, but I believe it to be accurate. Uh, I've seen it several places on the Internet this morning. But, David, uh, a motion to recuse the judge is decided by whom? <laughs> That's the $64 million question. It's decided by her as a matter of first course. Again, there are two ways you can go in. You can go in with this motion um, on a statute providing for recusal where there's the appearance of a lack of impartiality, appearance of partiality. Um, in that case, the uh, motion is heard by the judge uh, subject to recusal. Or you can go in if you can really make a credible showing of actual bias with an affidavit or declaration, then that should be assigned to another judge to consider. Um, I don't think in this case, I, I don't know. Look, I have to look at the record more carefully now. You've just told me facts that I didn't know about the judge's background and so on. As I say, I know her to be a fair person, but I know her here to have made inappropriate extraneous comments, gratuitous comments about Trump. And I think that ought to provide the basis for the perception. Um, so I, I think that's the more likely motion, and she's going to decide it. But then the next step would be to take that up on a mandamus petition. Uh, you have to do that or you probably waive it if you wait till the end of the case. You take it up on a mandamus petition to the D.C. Circuit. Um, and, you know, you have to have made sure to lay out a good record of the kinds of comments and why you believe that uh, leads to a perception of bias in this case. Um, but there, look, there are many issues. These lawyers, we haven't seen it in the other indictments so far, I'm sorry to say. They've got to start really advocating zealously for their client with all of the legitimate good faith bases open to them. Um, you know, one of the other things, and I'm sorry to skip ahead and you can stop me, but um, one of the other things I'm very troubled by in this case, and we've seen it in the other cases, is we have, again, a speaking indictment, long indictment here, detailed purported facts from witnesses who have never had their credibility challenged in any meaningful forum. There's nobody at the grand jury to cross-examine them, for example. And so we have their self-serving comments. We don't know their motivations. Many of them are certainly self-preservation motivations laid out in detail for the public to see now distributed around the world forever. And you're going to have the prosecution come in, I can guarantee you, with a motion for protective order demanding that there not be public comments on the indictment. They'll cite the local rules in D.C., which are very, uh, very stringent on commenting publicly. I would suggest to the uh, possible First Amendment infringement violation extent. But so Donald Trump is left unable to comment once a protective order providing such a thing is put into place. And the world sees just these unproven allegations against him forever until the time of the trial and during an election period. That's very unfair. I don't think there should be a protective order in this case, certainly not one that provides for that. If they have certain uh, protected materials, bank records, Social Security numbers, sure, those should be under a protective order. Otherwise, it's a matter of great public interest. The public and the media deserve full access to this and to the, the uh, points of view of all of the parties in this case. Uh, the the D.C. district, as I recall, is the only district court, or maybe one of the few, where not only uh, the defendant can be gagged, but the attorneys who represent him can also be gagged. Therefore, they would not be allowed to comment about any matter pertaining to the trial uh, under those circumstances. I would hope that that doesn't happen, but I learned the hard way that in the District of Columbia, the Constitution, the law, the rules... The evidence, sadly, in a trial this politicized, none of those things matter. Now, 
Special Counsel Jack Smith uh, named uh, five of six other defendants, but he did not charge them, charging President Trump alone, based on what I have read, for the purposes of expediting the president's trial, fearing that he, if he charged uh, six other co-defendants, I guess in this case co-conspirators, based on his allegation, uh, that the that that might slow down the speed of the trial. Is that does that not make it obvious that the effort here is to hold this trial prior to the 2024 election, and therefore these charges in of themselves are election interference? Yeah, listen, I, I do think that a main reason he didn't charge the unindicted co-conspirators was to expedite the matter. On the other hand, I also think it's the high, it highlights the fact that this is all about get Trump. You can look at any of these indictments. Look at the superseding indictment in Florida. You've alleged you know, down there that certain uh, statements were made, certain efforts were made, um, that the government claims are illegal, not by Donald Trump, but by others. But only Donald Trump is charged with uh, directing those things to be done. That's unheard of. You don't leave out the actor. Um, and so here, you know, the people they're talking about, if you believe a crime was committed here, uh, and I don't, but if the government, uh, Jack Smith, believes a crime was committed here, then why wouldn't you charge the people who actually would have done the acts to commit it? Um, those so-called co-conspirators, if you believe their theory of prosecution. So it's clearly about just piling on Donald Trump. And I think it's a philosophy that seems to be backfiring strongly so far, that if they pile enough of these cases on him, it will be so distracting, so overwhelming, that other Republicans will come out and now say, oh, listen, we can't have this, it's distracting, you must step aside, or that finally Donald Trump would give up, and that, that doesn't seem to be in his nature either. Because, and, and especially since we see him soaring in the polls, soaring beyond anyone's expectations, um, no matter where you stood uh, politically. Um, and so uh, it looks like it's backfiring, but it is extraordinarily unfair. And for them to suggest, I actually saw, ironically, a headline in The New York Times complimenting Jack Smith for the um, expedited nature in which he has moved forward with a complicated case. What on earth are you talking about? You're talking about charging events from two and a half or more years ago, now all of a sudden coming up in the middle of an election season, all of a sudden new developments each time evidence comes out about Hunter Biden and his father and so on with the laptop. Um, It's it just people at some point are going to reach the breaking point and say enough is enough. I'm going to exercise my right at the ballot box. No matter who I like, I'm going to exercise my right to say I will not put up with a government like this. Well, what you say is absolutely right. Uh, I've known Donald Trump for 45-plus years. Uh, his mood is excellent. He is resilient. He is determined. Uh, he's more determined uh, than ever. Uh, he is a, a fighter. I think he's at his best in crisis. He's best on the attack. Uh, he has no qualms about calling out uh, this as naked election interference. The reason they are bringing this case is because it's counterintuitive every time they charge him in New York, uh, in uh, in civil cases and a criminal case, uh, in the Mar-a-Lago matter, he actually goes up in the polls. He gets more support. The support that he does have is galvanized, uh, and he 
uh, brings in tens of millions of dollars of small and medium-sized contributions from average Americans, unlike other candidates running for president. In this cycle, he is not depending on a small group of super wealthy bundlers maxing out and getting their wealthy friends to max out. He is truly funded by an enormous base of hundreds of thousands of small and medium-sized donors who can give again and again. So I must tell you, uh, he is determined. He is resilient. Uh, he is, uh, he is uh, I think, more charged up. Uh, and he is ready mentally and physically for this fight. Now, the fact that the special counsel uh, named, uh, that said that there would be six other defendants, uh, and over about 24 hours, five of them were clearly identified, but the sixth one, described as a quote-unquote political consultant, uh, was not disclosed, which gave rise to a new Trump haters parlor game of guessing who that person might be. I was myself trending on Twitter for two days as people speculated that it might be me. Let's be very clear. Any claim that I knew in advance about was involved in or condoned any illegal act on January 5th or 6th or any other date or at any other place, for that matter, is categorically false. Nor was I involved in any way uh, in the effort to delay the certification of the uh, vote of the Electoral College. I'm not an attorney. I have read legal opinions that say that that uh, that there is a legal basis for that. I've seen the insistence of others that say there is no basis for that. But I am most definitely not uh, number six. And as for the famous war room in the Willard Hotel, the Washington Post reports that at least three sources told them that I was not involved whatsoever in Mayor Giuliani's efforts, uh, and I never was any in any such war room. If that war room even existed, I didn't know about it at the time. Thanks for the opportunity to clear that up. The quote from the New York Times that you very specifically referred to, David, uh, is, uh, quote, the special counsel Jack Smith has undertaken two historic investigations with remarkable speed, aggressiveness, <laughs> and apparent indifference to collateral political consequences. This is right, the most... Right. This is the most laughable BS I have ever read in my entire life. They are historic because presidents under the 1977 Presidential Records Act can do anything with their records that they wish, including determining what is personal and what belongs to the government. So that's certainly historic because it flies in the face of that law and a decision upholding it by none other than Judge Amy Berman Jackson herself who sat as a judge in my trial, but ruled that former President Bill Clinton could do anything with his documents he wanted, including keeping some of them in his sock drawer at home. Uh, but to say that this, this prosecution is not political, this is all about politics. Uh, while it took Special Counsel John Durham five years to reach what the conclusion that many of us already knew, that there was no probable cause no evidence whatsoever of Russian collusion with the Trump campaign, no collusion between WikiLeaks and the Trump campaign. It took him five years to determine that. Yet Mr. Smith conducts this investigation at lightning speed and wanted in the Marlago documents case to go to a December 
2023 trial. Now he wants to streamline the process to get President Trump's trial before the 2024 election. This is what makes this whole thing naked. What is this about? If they could incarcerate Donald Trump, if they could throw him in jail for 100 years, they would do that. They would like to do that. But what they really want to do is to make sure that his campaign for president is hobbled and that he will be tethered to a courtroom when he's supposed to be out campaigning in early primaries and caucus states and preparing for a Republican National Convention, which is most definitely going to nominate him. Uh, this Times coverage is beyond belief. Yeah. You, you hit the nail on the head, though, the idea of tying him up in a courtroom and so on. And you've got judges who are more than willing uh, uh, willing to comply with that agenda but, you know, it's not just cheating Donald Trump. It, it really is treating the, cheating the entire American people. People who love Donald Trump deserve to have him out there speaking on the issues, putting forward their agenda, pointing out the differences between his administration and the current administration. And people who hate Donald Trump ought to have that same right and ability. They ought to want to hear his words unvarnished on the campaign trail without these kinds of distractions. There's nothing in any of these four cases that should have been brought as a criminal case. You can break any one. I say four because I think the Georgia case is going to come because, again, you have a prosecutor running for reelection. She feels she has a constituency in Fulton County that's strongly anti-Trump and so on. So I think you're going to see a fourth one. So all none of these things should have been brought criminally. They wouldn't be have been brought against other people. But um, I got to back up one thing. One second, because I wanted to say something earlier. I'm sure all of your listeners know this, but there is no one on the planet that understands and knows and can advise on election, politics, strategy, uh, etc., more than Roger Stone. You are the master in the field. And so when you read the tea leaves, so to speak, about trends and so on, everybody better listen. Uh, David, I appreciate that. I predict right now that Donald Trump is going to go up sharply in the polls, that he's going to take in tens of millions of dollars in new contributions and contributions from those who haven't given previously. Uh, this is counterintuitive. Normally, when a candidate for public office is indicted in any kind of matter, uh, they implode. In this case, that which does not kill Donald Trump only makes him much stronger. Final question, David. Uh, Kyle Cheney, who is the political reporter for Politico, uh, posted on Twitter last night, I just left the courtroom where Trump was arraigned. The most interesting part, several of the federal judges of the district court filled the back row, including Chief Judge James Boesberg, uh, Judge Amy Berman Jackson, and Judge Randy Moss. Uh, David, is this not unusual? Absolutely unusual. I've never heard of it. I've been doing this for a long time. I don't like the optic at all. If it's intended, you know, this is the magistrate judge who did the arraignment yesterday, not Judge Chutkin, district judge, but it was intended to be a show of force or to send some message about what the court's going to take and not take. I think it's completely inappropriate. You can't have it both ways. You can't have it, we're going to treat this like any other proceeding and call a president of the United States, Mr. Trump, but then have other federal judges from this district, including uh, judges who have made horrible, extraneous, inappropriate comments about the defendant sitting in the courtroom. It's intimidating. It's intended to intimidate. I don't think Donald Trump was intimidated by it at all. But uh, I, I worry about it. And I worry about it, quite frankly, given sort of the stature. Uh, I mean, I hate to say this, but the stature. In other, 
He needs to have a strong legal team, let me put it that way, that's going to be willing to stand up to all kinds of pressure that they're going to face and zealously advocate for their client, both in the papers, with motions, and in court. All right. Unfortunately, we have to leave it there. Uh, Thank you very much for David Schultz.